This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got, you got to, anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why, why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. That seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out, watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah, okay? It also saves your life. It 
it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. <laughs> so don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's it, – It sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has – did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart. She just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something... You can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's fun to talk to somebody that coaches these candidates. Some of them are so bad at uh, knowing what to do and how to do it. Can you imagine being paid by somebody to, I don't know, change how Bernie Sanders does stuff? Or how a Donald Trump... Hey, Don, we... um. We need you to not say some of the things you're saying. What? What? Well, you know, the whole Muslim thing. Could you just tone down that rhetoric? And like uh, we've heard, he, he may not even believe some of this stuff. Because it works. It works. You know, there's the whole Times, New York Times uh, interview that he did that came up in a, one of the debates two or three, four debates ago, where the big question is, what is, what did he say off the record? Because with the journalist, he was saying something off the record, and many say what he was saying is 
he was saying it's not quite I'm not going to keep talking about this wall thing. In the end, it's like not it may not matter what they're saying, but it seems to matter to us, doesn't it? It seems to matter to us. What he what he was talking about was uh what with the New York Times something around the idea of he's not really into this uh all the is immigration stances he's taken yeah that he doesn't really want to go that far with it but he did in the speech because it right as you said it brought people with him and that is there a, is there a tape of this but the new york we, times is like it's up to donald, up to trump donald. We'll release release. yeah we'll release everything he said yeah and he's like no i believe too much in the freedom of press <laughs> to keep their to keep their secrets especially when they're mine but what what it might be telling us is people will say anything to get elected right we're even finding out in a lot of these states where Donald is doing well, immigration's not even an issue. It's not even an issue. But what it might be that people like is the fact that Donald seems so passionate about what he's saying. He's a salesperson, and he might be just selling his message better. He may not even believe in the message necessarily. Many question if he is conservative, right? But he'll sell it. He'll sell it. And so... Uh, be careful. Check your gut on that and go get the information you need. You can get it from enough sources. And it doesn't mean he's just a bad guy either, these politicians. It might just be that they're, they really want to win. Interesting, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, although America is fairly young as a country, you know, one of the biggest successes of the U.S. is its peaceful transfer of power from one executive leader to the next. And while these transitions can be described as peaceful, they cannot necessarily be described as organized. And uh, thinking about, you know, Donald Trump, a a non-politician, becoming president of the United States, we started thinking, man... What kind of transition or handoff would that be um, from, you know, President Obama, been there eight years, to Donald Trump, who really hasn't been in uh, government administration? So we wanted to talk to an expert on the subject. Dr. Heath Brown is an assistant professor of public policy at John Jay College and author of the book uh, Lobbying the New President, Interests in Transition. And he joins us today to discuss a presidential transition. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being with us today. Matt, thanks so much for having me. This is, I, I think, a very interesting topic. You you hear of the stories of, I think it was the Clinton administration that took all the W's off of the keyboards when George Bush's administration came in as a joke. Um, but that handoff between one administration to another, it's it's critical, but it also seems it's a vulnerable time for the country. I think you're absolutely right in that that famous story about the the W's being removed from the the keyboards. I don't know if anyone's actually substantiated that, but but the message is is there, which is when we have a transition between two different parties, there's obvious room for tension. Uh, two parties that have run against each other um, in a in a presidential campaign, one of them wins, and if that group is coming into the office, there's this area for 
uh, conflict. Uh, that kind of conflict could raise all sorts of risks. And over time, so the last 50 years, there have been continual efforts to try to make the process much more seamless so that those risks aren't too great. Now, talk about how the transition works. Is it, I mean, it seems like it would take years to prepare a transition, but these candidates don't even know they've won until November, and then they have to transition by January. You're absolutely right. The, what we call the, sort of the formal transition, uh, the transition period that most people recognize, is between the election and the inauguration, about 11 weeks or right. about 70-odd days. But if you were to think about what it would actually take to make the number of decisions that need to be made, simply moving people in and out of offices, we've all moved homes or moved offices, right. how long that takes. This planning starts much long before the election. And so we can think of the pre-election transition period happening sometimes as long as a year before the election. That's happening right now and, and is happening in anticipation of a victory. Now, hmm. there's a lot of planning that could go on for that the candidate who doesn't win, but they still have to plan because what if they do win? You don't want to be unprepared for that victory. Right. So, so I guess each candidate, uh, I guess now, President or, uh, um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, they should probably already have transition teams in place. We know that Donald Trump does. Uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, I said maybe about eight weeks ago, he announced that Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, was going to be chairing his transition team and, and appears to be doing that uh, to today. We don't know whether Hillary Clinton and, and who she has named to begin her transition planning, but it seems very clear that she's already preparing for this and she has a team. She just hasn't named this publicly yet. Hmm. It's a, uh, it, it, there's a whole side of this that I had never thought about until I read your article um, in prospect.org. Talk about what are the dangers of this time of transition? Um, I mean, I know one of the things you did mention was transparency. There's a lot of people whose hands get in the game that maybe aren't legit. Yeah, I think there's really two sets of, of concerns. One is the concern about not planning. And so there's a lot of people who worry, well, if a candidate is so worried about the accusations of presumptuousness, mm -hmm. the accusations that, well, you're, you're assuming that you're going to win, and that shows your arrogance, if that leads to someone not preparing, that's a major problem. Now, that's a major problem that, that I think um, isn't, isn't usually something that actually happens, but we worry about that. That is under-planning. On the other side, what we worry about is planning that happens in secret. That is, as we are electing a new president, as we are casting votes, as we're trying as a public to judge these candidates, there is important decision-making going on that we may have no idea about. And that lack of transparency, I think, is a related but, but different kind of problem to worry about. That is, how can we be deciding on the person at the top of the ticket when all sorts of decisions already may have been made, but we don't know it? So there's two sets of concerns, I think, during this time period. And we've talked on the show a lot about the influence of lobbyists at, at, at pretty much every level of creation of legislation. So why wouldn't the lobbyists also be involved in the secretive planning of the next transition? Yeah, I think you're right. We have all sorts of rules that restrict how much a, anyone, including a lobbyist, could give to support a candidate. Uh, those caps are set up so that uh, 
any individual can't support one candidate uh, so much more than, than everyone else that it's deemed unfair. So we have those kinds of rules. But if you were very interested in getting involved in one of the two candidates and, and trying to help influence the direction of their administration, assuming they win, one of the things you might do is try to get to them early, get to them before they win, right. and try to provide them with some ideas. Why don't you consider this person for an important job? Why don't you consider this policy option? That happens. That's happening now. That's, that's happening at the Republican convention. That's going to happen at the Democrats' convention. Those kinds of um, really behind-the-scenes uh, planning starts now, but we really don't know very much about it. They certainly don't announce it when they do it. Yeah, no. Hey, we've got three lobbyists helping us with our transition program. Um, yeah, nobody wants to admit that. But they, we, we know, like in Congress, that a lot of the, the lobbying arms provide manpower. They provide, um, you know, research and they write articles or they write kind of briefs for the politicians and for the candidates. So, it, man, it seems like a really interesting way to get some leverage is to just offer – let me help offer staff for your team to transition, and then all of a sudden you're influencing the entire transition process. I guess that's what you're saying, Dr. Brown, right, is that needs to be transparent. We need to make sure we know who's on the team and who's making what decisions. Absolutely. There are lobbyists with excellent ideas about what each of the presidents should be doing. They have – a wealth of knowledge and experience from years inside and outside of government. There's no reason why lobbyists shouldn't be involved in the planning for a new administration before the election and after the election. That's, I think, not the major question. The question is, how about everybody else? How about everybody else that might have an idea? Do they have the same opportunity to influence the incoming administration like someone who has this insider access? That's, I think, really the question that, that, that I ask in the, the, the piece that I wrote, and, and I hope other people ask. That is, how could we make this period as open and transparent as the rest of the campaigns are? The campaigns get up on stage and tell you what they believe. We don't know as much about what's going on behind the scenes. I think people would be interested in that if candidates shared that part of their campaign. Yeah, you bet. And um, are, are there no laws are there no laws? Are there no rules for how the transition works? There are some rules, and uh, federal law has increasingly provided assistance to the candidates during the transition period so that new laws have made um, money available after the convention to the two major candidates to help them begin to do their preparations. There are now laws in the book which require the, the sitting administration to begin to share information with the candidates so that each of the major candidates can designate people on their uh, transition team that will receive security briefings so that once they win, they're not caught off guard on, on important issues of national concern. So there are some rules, but most of those rules don't directly relate to the opening up the process. Now, there's a little bit of, of uh, a requirement that if you raise outside money, you have to report that to the government. But even in that case, we get to know just a little bit of information, not nearly as much as we get to know about the campaign contributions that are given mm. uh, to all the different candidates. So there's some rules on the book, but they're not nearly as expansive as for other aspects of politics. And th th this is a real threat, too, because... I mean, you with terrorism the way it's working and the, and the way we're being impacted by it, 
there could be a threat on day one, a major threat on day one, and you could have an administration that doesn't even know the protocols to handle a threat. I think that since the, 19, since the early 1960s, in the midst of the Cold War, when, when similar types of worries were in place, the, the concern was that our enemies would look at this handover of power as a potential open window uh, of, of sort of uh, lack of uh, unity and, and lack of sort of consistent understanding of what the nature of the problems are. That's why the early planning and preparation matters so much. If you don't begin planning long before the inauguration, even long before the election, there's the potential. There's, I think everyone worries that these security threats that are persistent throughout all of our lives would be heightened during those early days of the next administration. That's why the planning is so very important, mm. and it's important to be done in a truly comprehensive way. Well, I, I think it's a critical discussion. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Heath Brown. He's Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and author of the book Lobbying the New President, Interest in Transition. He also has a new book out, Pay to Play Politics, How Money Defines the American Democracy. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, continue this discussion about presidential transitions. We'll also get some of the solutions that Dr. Brown uh, proposes Uh, some answers to uh, how we could handle it in the future. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in a few months, just a few months, we are going to have a transition, a, a presidential transition, either to Hillary Clinton's administration or to Donald Trump's administration. And there's a lot of things that uh, have to be in place in order to make that happen. Today, we're talking with uh, Dr. Heath Brown. Dr. Brown is a professor, assistant professor of public policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice author of the book Lobbying the New President, Interests in Transition, which was published in 2012, and uh, another book, uh, Pay to Play Politics, How Money Defines the American Democracy. Dr. Heath Brown, thank you so much for being with us today. A real pleasure. Talk about, um, so the transition, again, it's interesting how we, 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 it's still not formally, I mean, it is. If I'm a candidate and I'm about to be president, I'd plan. I know with Mitt Romney, he had a really strong team, it seemed like, in place to uh, to do this transition, because I heard a lot about it, because Governor Levitt, who was Utah's governor, was over that. Um, but talk about the. there's not a lot of legislation behind it. There's not a lot of regulation yet. What are you proposing um, as some solutions for how these transitions should go forward? Yeah, I think what, what we've seen over time is from, the, let's say, the, the 1960s, 1950s up to today, there have been increasing efforts, and, and some of them have been legislative, to, to encourage, practically require candidates to begin their transition planning and to do so in partnership with the, in, the sitting administration. What we haven't seen, on the other hand, is efforts to make the process truly open and democratic. 
And mm. it's on that side, that side that we care about, because this is an election, right? This right. is a time period where people are going out and they are casting votes. And so it seems to make sense that a process that is so deeply connected to our democratic elections should also be open and transparent in the way that elections are. And so what, what I've thought about, and I've thought about with, with some colleagues, is to try to think about how, how might that work. And, and the way I, I see it broken down is sort of questions of who, questions of what, and questions of how. And, and so the qu- first question is who. So who is actually doing the transition work? Who's the staffing, the, who the, who's the staff that's been chosen to do it? And second, what? What are they doing? Who are they holding meetings with? Are these meetings open to the public? Are these meetings just with a certain small group of advisors, or are they being held with a larger group of individuals? And then how? Who's funding this? We know who's funding the campaign, but we don't know as much about who's funding the transition operations. And so I think that if candidates and and if, if the public paid much more attention to this, uh, either through um, developing policies on their own, either voluntary or, or in some ways required, to answer these questions, the process of transition planning would be much more democratic and much more in line with what we expect of elections in general. Hmm. It seems like as a as a lay man here who doesn't get everything politically, that um, the the administration seems like uh, um, a, a certain level of all it's the leadership of all of the typical bureaucracy of government. Doesn't the bureaucracy of government just go forward and all we're doing with a new transition is replacing the leaders? That you're, you're absolutely right that, that come November when there's a new election and then in there the inauguration in January, much of the federal government will remain in place. The vast majority of federal employees will not be impacted one way or the other by who wins the election. What we're really talking about is a small tier of, of political appointees, those people that the incoming president is allowed to appoint upon coming into office. Now, those people matter a lot because those are often the people in charge of federal agencies. So what we're talking about is members of the cabinet, uh, those people that advise members of the cabinet, people in the White House, all of those high-ranking officials in the federal government are the people who are going to change when we have a new president in uh, come January. So it's really those people that we're focused on here. The vast majority of, of federal employees uh, aren't impacted one way or the other when a new administration comes into power. Um, you gave an example in your article about uh, Steve Griles, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that, because that, I think, gives a really interesting context to why the transparency, like you're saying, the who, the what, the how, how these transitions are funded, why, it, why it's so important and how it plays out long term. Yeah, absolutely. And so what we have is a process that, that begins, as I mentioned, long before the election with, with lots of planning. And the planning goes on essentially behind doors, closed doors. But if you're a savvy political operative, if you're a lobbyist that represents an interest like Stephen Grouse did in the past, what you might want to do is to begin to influence that pre-election transition planning. Now, if you did that successfully, 
once the uh, election happened and your candidate, the candidate you had backed, either through campaign contributions or your own endorsement, or maybe even your own voting, what you might want to then do is to be named to one of the official transition teams. And in fact, that's what happened to Griles. He was, uh, went from being a lobbyist to being appointed to one of the George W. Bush transition teams in 2000, 2001. And so he was involved in the planning for the Departments of Energy, uh, the Departments of Interior, the exact policy areas that he had lobbied on in the past. Now, if you were very interested in uh, uh, making federal policy, you might want to then move from the transition team into government. And in fact, Riles did just that. He mm. went from a campaign contributor to a member of the transition team and ultimately was appointed to a position in the Department of Interior. It's that trajectory from campaign to transition to administration that is only available to some people. This isn't available to you and I. This isn't right. available to most of your listeners. That's the real question I think that people uh, would want to ask if they paid close attention to how this works. Well, and I don't know how you'd – how do you separate out if – if I was a coal industry lobbyist making money lobbying uh, for the coal industry, then I become a member of the, um, the Interior Department. I don't know how I turn off what I used to do. You know what I mean? Like, because I'm still, I'm in the know, and everyone that were my clients now have access. I mean, it's it just seems like a conflict of interest almost. Well, I think that people worry about that, and I think the uh, Barack Obama transition team worried about that so much so that they had nearly a full lobbying ban, which is to say that if you were had worked as a lobbyist on a specific issue, and then you wanted to go work on the transition team, you couldn't devote your time on the transition team to that same issue. Mm. So if you were working on, let's say, oil and natural gas policy as a lobbyist, you could then work on the transition team on education or health care. But you couldn't allow those two areas to overlap for the exact reason yeah. that you mentioned, which is either an uh, actual conflict of interest or, I think as importantly, the perception that there is a conflict of interest. And in those, for those reasons, the Obama administration, when they came into power, enacted a, a series of voluntary practices that tried to insulate their transition team from too much outside influence. Now, they didn't get it perfectly right, right. but they did start to take some initial steps to doing this. And there were indications that the Mitt Romney transition team were going to do something very similar if they had been elected. Mm. And, and in fact, weren't they even – even with Hillary Clinton, they were trying to make sure there were very clear lines between the Clinton Global Initiative program, her husband, and what she was doing. I think there's, there's, there's all sorts of things. Once, once the government is up and running, after the transition – uh, there are all sorts of federal rules to, to Protect uh, keep them. these lines very clear. Hmm. But during that 11 weeks, it's much less clear. So a lot of the transition, a lot, a lot of the transparency rules that we have for yeah. sitting federal officials don't apply in the same way during the transition period, even though during the transition time period uh, there are important decisions being made. So, so for, for example... If you wanted to request a document from a sitting federal official, there is a FOIA request, which is a freedom of information. So if you are a citizen of the country, you can uh, request these kinds right. of documents. Now, during the transition period, 
because the inauguration hasn't happened, the FOIA Act oh, is not right. in They're a private so citizen. We, hmm. Exactly. And so, so the, some of the questions we, we might have couldn't be answered in the same way as when the administration is up and running. And I think that's, that's worthy of, uh, of a conversation about. Absolutely. I mean, we think of how much we try to track the candidates and all of their contributions and, and have a line of transparency there. And then we have an 11-week gap. That's, that, that's absurd, right? I mean, that's, that's what needs to be fixed. How, so how do you propose fixing it? I mean, do, is this, should we all just call into our legislators? Do you just need a legislator to say something to, make a, to pass a law? Is that the goal? I think one of the things that, that could be done is the media can pay much more attention. I think that, that your attention to this today, I think, is, is unusual at this point. Uh, most of, of the media, the, our, sort of our, our collective watchdog on politics, is paying much more attention to the very uh, uh, visible forms of the campaign. Who's going to be speaking at the convention? What's going on in the debates? I think one of the solutions here is to pay much more attention to those things that aren't uh, as flashy, but may be as important. I think that's one thing. Yeah. I think a second thing is for candidates themselves to enact voluntary policies that they would want to use once they're in office. And so what you often see is candidates say, I am going to be the most ethical and open president that you'll ever have. If that's the case, what, what, what I think we might want to see them do is to begin that process of being open and transparent during their campaign on things like this. Um, much of that, that at this point uh, has to be voluntary because there's, there's a few indications that that's going to be uh, addressed in a legislative form. But, but candidates can do it themselves. There's all sorts of ways that, that uh, uh, an individual running for office can voluntarily be transparent and go beyond what's actually required for, of them by law. You bet. Man, uh, I, mean, I think it's just – it's great. It's great insight, and I appreciate uh, your willingness to help us with it. Uh, Dr. Brown, we're going to have to have you come back again because I want to talk about your new book and – and and just the whole I don't know Citizens United ruling and I, I, we got to we got to get into the financing of all of these elections too because something's crazy with that. Doctor Heath Brown, thank you so much for your insights and uh, keep up the great work. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. Thanks so much. Again, Doctor Heath Brown and the uh, the book you got to go you got to go find it, folks. It's uh, it's um, lobbying the new president, interest in transition. And Dr. Heath Brown's his name. We'll take a break and come back, continue the discussion, do a little wrap-up of this first hour, and uh, maybe a little bit of wrap-up of last night as well. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh. Is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. 
It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to – I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always – you know, it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier. Uh, happier life. But there's there's certain things that have to be there. And and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You 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 got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create I think some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school. Or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've gotta you've gotta be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us, uh and especially and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from – an age group and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like, uh, Like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. 
And again, if you're planning on if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be, you know, out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they they're they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, "Do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get just wait. Wait." Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got... um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that, the, that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, And we talked about it, the fact if you, if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You, act, you, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. 
And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't – is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage. And you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's gonna, you're probably going to slow down your path. So parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. <laughs> And they dissuade us from dating at work, okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life and uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And... um. You know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's... It's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his, in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that 
companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales, and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on sales, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in you know, six months from now, and then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also, I think if you just look at, uh, like, Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more. Uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90 year old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. 
she's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful. <laughs> because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel trash, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! <laughs> a photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine, worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, said there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can, Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See? You can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. Drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben. Because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, dad, have you looked it up? Have you have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. 
He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we, te- we contacted the iPad, told him to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad. Buy all of the things I never had. Welcome back, everybody. If you want to be a billionaire... Well, our next guest may be able to help you there. There's about 3 million people in the United States who are millionaires or multimillionaires, and about one-third of those millionaires are women. You may ask yourself, how do all these people become so rich? Dr. Jude Miller-Burke had the same question, so she interviewed millionaires and made some interesting discussions here to discuss her book, Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy, and How You Can Too, is Dr. Jude Miller-Burke. Uh, Dr. Burke, th- Mil- uh, Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt, and I love the intro song. It's a cool song, isn't it? It's a great song. you got to love it. And who doesn't, I mean, who wouldn't want to be a millionaire? Is that, so you just decided, I want to go figure out what millionaires are thinking. Yes, I grew up in a rural area of uh, Minnesota, and people were not driving Mercedes or Bentleys, needless to say. And uh, my parents were 18 years old when I got married and did not have the opportunity to go to college. And so many years down the road, all of my siblings and myself went to college, got graduate degrees, but we pretty much had to figure it out on our own. And then when I moved to an affluent suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, I met so many transplants, so many very wealthy people who had grown up in poverty, had experienced abuse as kids, but somehow they got from the point where they experienced a lot of childhood adversity to success. And I was really curious, you know, they started telling me their stories over a cup of coffee, glass of wine, and I became very curious as to how they accomplished that. And I have been in employee assistance counseling for many, many years. I worked at United Health Group, I worked at Honeywell for 10 years, and then I've done executive coaching. So my role has been to help as many people as possible. And I thought writing a book that's a guidebook, a how-to book, would be the most helpful for people in terms of getting them on the road to success. You make a great point because a lot of us, I mean, if you haven't been raised with money um, or around money or even, you know, in the neighborhood of money, it, uh, it, it seems like it's kind of a, it's an uphill battle. I've always heard it's easier to make money with money. And, um, and I guess even the opportunities, the rights, the benefits that come with a family that, that's affluent. Talk to us about uh, your, your process. So you, you sent out um, a, a form to millionaires that you knew. And then I guess you, you got more and more names and started sending out more of these. I, I guess so far, how many uh, millionaires have you reviewed or how many have you investigated and talked about or talked to? I have worked with Dr. Mark Attridge um, out of Minneapolis, who does consulting, and he's a social science researcher. And we've done several waves of research. Um, Nicholas Brealy, my publisher for the last book, wanted it about women in particular. But we have over 310 men and women we've studied, half of whom are multimillionaires or millionaires. Wow. And these are all self-made people. 
interestingly enough, 75% of them were from low-income poverty to middle class. There wow. were 25% of the people that were from a higher income level. So that's why I think this story is so inspirational. Yeah. Um, the hope. family backgrounds were interesting in that many of their parents' parents in the 1950s, 1960s owned their own businesses. So their parents owned the local grocery store or drug store. They learned at an early age around the dinner table that being an entrepreneur is okay, and they learned some of the basics for business. That's great. So one of the things that was handed down then apparently was – in fact, this just happened recently. I was talking to one of my clients, and um, her husband struggles in school but is really entrepreneurial. And I thought, well, man, maybe maybe school's not as not his forte. So if if it's important for him to get the degree, get the degree, but know that he'll probably do better in something he he's really more interested in. But it was it was interesting to see the response of the wife was terrified because she had never been raised around a family of entrepreneurs. She she wanted him to just go get a degree, get a job, and just kind of stick in the job for the next 30 years instead of having that entrepreneurial spirit. Right. But being an entrepreneur uh, really has its roots in different personality types. Yeah. Now, surprisingly, though, with this group, they were very highly educated. And they may have been because we used a snowball sampling. So we d- designed this scientific questionnaire and uh, over 60% of the people responded. And part of that is because it was the network of, you know, my own network yeah. and also Dr. Mark Attrich's network. But this was a highly educated group. And also, surprisingly, uh, the parents in the 90s, 1950s and 60s also had college degrees hmm. six times more often. So even though these kids who eventually became successful did not grow up with wealth, they grew up with parents who were really demonstrating the value of education, perseverance, conscientiousness, and hard work. Because as you know, when you have your own business, you oh. pretty much work 24-7. Right. And you, yeah, it doesn't go away. Um, so, so one of the things you found out, uh, that the parents were educated, the, the, their children as well were educated, and then they ended up becoming millionaires. They also had parents that owned businesses. But the principles were more education, perseverance, I guess, hard work. What else? What other, what other uh, learnings came out of your, the research? Well, no one had a straight linear path. Everyone, the men and the women, had detours and failures um, at a very high rate, 50%, 70% for detours. Um, they had been fired. They had been laid off. They experienced illnesses. They relocated. They took time off to have children. And the men actually had more failures, but the women had more detours, primarily due to the childbearing and childrearing, mm. and also taking care of other ill family members. Um, some of the success factors that uh, emerged, uh, and again, we used a lot of standardized measures. So these are measures on self-esteem, on work engagement, on social influence that have been used over and over again in social science research. So we compared our group of very successful people to the traditional norms. Um, So as I mentioned, many of them owned businesses. They were friendly, but not necessarily personal at work. Mm. And the women and the men were willing to argue a point to closure, 
which actually is very difficult for many people. But, you know, as you move up in the management chain and, and even owning your own businesses um, or our partners in the clinic, you have to be willing to mediate and deal with the conflict at work. And so these, this was a group of people, including the women, who had learned how to argue a point to closure and not take it personally. Wow, that's, that's an interesting little insight, isn't it? They, so they, yes, were, it is. they were adept and skilled in communication, conflict resolution. Right. And one of the things they said was most important to become successful and to be a great leader is good written and verbal communication skills, which I think especially today with this, the social media focus, it's so important to remember that. Man. Um, see, they also recommended becoming highly prepared and an expert in your field. So way back when a professor had told me you would be a great psychologist, I think I was all of maybe 18 years old, and I was taking psychology courses, and we were doing exercises and role plays. And I have a passion for my field. I love helping people. I read psychology books all the time. No one else is reading what I'm reading <laughs> in my social group. Um, but I think it's important to pick something that you love and become highly prepared and then become an expert in your field. And, and that's something that is in our circle of influence. That's something anyone can do. Right. I mean, Very it's th- th- everything you're talking about. These aren't you know, this isn't like you need to raise funding of 10 million dollars. It's you've got to be friendly and pers- but not personal necessarily. I mean, willing to argue to closure, good written and verbal communication skills, highly prepared in your field. I, I mean, these are doable. They are very doable. And the people I studied were ordinary people that did extraordinary things. And all of their stories are in my book, along with at the end of each chapter are very specific how-to bullet points. So very specific advice on what kind of work style to develop. What is the best leadership style to motivate the people that you supervise? Um, How do you overcome prejudice and discrimination? Um, Some of the other success factors that were recommended were um, self-awareness, self-management, and I have a new wave of research that we have just completed, and I'm writing a new book that will be mm. coming out next spring about rewriting your story to be successful at work. One of the things that emerged is that 40% of the people we studied either experienced um, poverty, childhood adversity, witnessed domestic violence, or had an alcoholic, uh, chemically dependent family member. What percentage was that? 40%. Wow. So yeah. if you think about the extreme experiences these kids had, they grow up, 20 years later, they're in the workplace. So, of course, that adversity is affecting their work style. And in both books, I write about how to know what your own triggers are, how to acknowledge them, and how to uh, learn to manage your triggers. Let me give you a quick example. Yeah, please. Uh, say someone grew up in a family where there's abuse, which, you know, 50 years ago, that was... I don't know, maybe it's more common now, but it was fairly common then, you know, spare the rod, spare the child. Well, then people go into work, and they bring their fears and their insecurities into work, and it affects their relationships. But women need men at work, and men need women. Building social capital with both sexes is so important for success. Mm. And to be authentic and to be comfortable with yourself, uh, to network and to find mentors. And it doesn't have to be like one mentor over 20 years, but it could be 
maybe an uncle or an aunt that you respect yeah. or one of your parents or someone at work or someone in a professional network. Um, but to have someone that you, you can go to and discuss problems you're experiencing at work is really critical. I love it. Um, and just very basic principles is what we're discussing. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Jude Miller-Burke and about her book, Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy and How You Can Too. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion on uh, some of the basic principles of um, becoming a millionaire and – it's interesting, isn't it? We, For many, we think it's so out of reach, except when you listen to the data that we're talking about with our guest, um, it seems pretty common. Yet uh, for so many, just not in, their, not in their grasp, they feel. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, and we are speaking with Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, author of um, the book Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy and How You Can Too, uh, the work of uh, researching and evaluating 300-plus millionaires and gathering the data about their path to becoming a millionaire. And uh, Dr. Jude Miller-Burke is walking us through some of the key learnings. And, man, if there's anything I'm learning Dr. Uh, Miller-Burke, it's, hey, there's hope. There's a lot of hope, and that's part of why I wrote the book, is to provide inspiration to people. And as I mentioned earlier, my parents were 18 years old and had five children pretty quickly and did not have the opportunity to go to college. But I learned an immense amount from them about being conscientious and owning a business and persistence and overcoming obstacles. And I wanted to write this guidebook, this how-to book, to help more people become successful. You know what? And it, some people think the the pursuit of the millionaire dream is, you know, it's kind of selfish, it's self-absorbed, it's it's shallow. But the reality is, if you love what you're doing and you want to impact people's lives, money becomes just a symbol of it, doesn't it? Right. Money is just a symbol. It's really about having an overarching sense of purpose. And I have a whole chapter in the book about what it does for your mental health and your physical health to give back because there are demonstrated research results on you can have a, a better physical health and mental health by giving back to other people. And the title's catchy. You know, The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan, yeah. you know, her book, you know, in the 1960s. Um, but no, the book is not about just making money. For instance, I have a whole chapter on resilience because resilience is key to becoming successful and have uh, points about not taking no for an answer, using no as motivation, you know, choosing about what you are going to be stressed about, um, depending less on the opinions of others, which is so hard for most of us how to increase your sense of control by not letting others define you. And so there's a whole chapter on resilience and strengthening yourself. So whatever business or work situation you're in, you have more resources to draw upon. What did you find 
out about their personal lives? Did they – many would say they have to give up you know, your personal life to go be a success at this level financially. Did they have strong family lives? Did they have strong marriages and, and were they succeeding there as well? Um, actually, many of the people did have children and were married. Um, and I think it's a given that when you work in corporate America at the very high levels – you are forced more to give up um, some of your freedoms, you know, after being in corporate America for yeah. 20 years, different kinds of companies. I think um, it's safe for me to say that, you know, when you have your own business, you have more flexibility, which is, I think, why so many of these people were able to balance work and family, even though it was continued to be challenging. But if you're in your own business, you can take off a little bit earlier to go see a soccer game, um, you know, one of your kids, or if you need to take some specialized training to become more of an expert in your field, it's easier to do that. Did um, you, in one of your articles that I read uh, that was in Business Insider, you, you said that there was one trait that they all shared, um, a trait of conscientiousness. Talk about that for a minute with us. Well, this group as a whole is very conscientious whether that be in their personal life or in their work life. Um, They follow through, they're dependable, they're organized. So let's take their own finances, for instance, seeing as, you know, the title of the book is focused on millionaires. Um, They don't live outside their means. They're, They're not a group that puts a new car every year on their credit card you know, or makes payments. Hmm. They earn the money first, and then they spend the money. They live beneath their means. So often you wouldn't even know that these people are millionaires uh, because they have college funds for their kids. So in their work life, people can depend on them. People go to them for stability, for their calmness. And in their personal life, they lead in much the same way. So it's not someone who every January says, oh, I'm going to get a handle on my finances. This is a group that day in and day out has a savings plan. They don't um, fall prey to the princess syndrome, which is uh, one of the syndromes that one of the financial experts that I interview in the book talks about, which is, I need this, I need that, I have to have this. You know, they're a group that's learned that you don't have to buy everything that you want. And what you see on TV isn't necessarily reality it's tv yeah it's it, so it's interesting because that that takes so much discipline and it's not it doesn't necessarily jive with the um kind of the expectation you know we think these are people that are driving the nicest cars and you know turning the cars over regularly but the, instead it sounds like these are people that buy a car keep a car run the car into the ground almost and that is true. Of course, there are pockets like, you know, suburbs of L.A. or suburbs of Phoenix, you know, and other parts right. of the country where, you know, people are driving very fancy cars. But overall, um, they're a frugal group, and they're a wise group in terms of how they spend their money. They have a savings plan. They have a retirement plan. They invest wisely. They're more protective of their money. Um, and you had mentioned how they feel about their lives earlier in the interview, mm-hmm. and when we measured this group against the norms, it was interesting. They did have a greater life satisfaction, but not that much higher because they still were going home at night. And the women who I studied who were the self-made millionaires were still absorbing that second shift. That's right. 
so they had help, of course. Um, I think if you have two people working full time, you you know have to have some kind of help with you know the the yard or the home or you know watching the kids until you can get home from work. Um, but they still were absorbing that second shift. And so when I speak to groups of women, what I tell them to be aware of is that one of the most important decisions you can make, and this is true for men also, is who you decide to marry. Hmm. You know, is that person going to be supportive of your career? Who's going to get up in the middle of the night when the child is sick? Who's going to take off work the next day when the child needs to go to the doctor if you choose to have children? And to have these discussions up front, because you can either spend your life having someone supportive and pulling with you and supporting you in your career, or you can have someone that's working against you. I also really encourage people to think wisely about prenuptial agreements. And, you know, if you're going to have kids, to really spend time thinking through those prenuptial agreements. Um, because so often women tend to leave their full-time careers. And, you know, if you leave your career uh, and 20 years later and you were making even $50,000, that's a lot of loss. So to be mindful of your own financial future, even if you are part of a couple. Because there, there is, like you were saying earlier, there's a disparity in, um, you know, in home chore, you know, differences and who's doing what at home and, and even caregiving to adults, to our parents. Uh, and women take a disproportionate amount of, uh, of responsibility for that stuff. And so meanwhile, we're trying to become a millionaire, but women also are carrying this other burden of being the mom, being the caregiver, the provider, the cleaner, the, I mean, it's, you really got to make sure you're equally yoked with another person that is pulling the same direction. <laughs> well put. That, that's great. Um, yes, I think that's so important. And we talked earlier about how their lifestyle, you know, they had a greater life satisfaction. They also re- uh, reported a greater um, health um, but interestingly enough, um, as a group, their self-esteem was higher, but the men's self-esteem was higher than the women's in our self-made millionaire group. Really? Was, so as a group, overall, their self-esteem was higher than the normal population. Okay, interesting, but the men still had a higher self-esteem. Right. Interesting. And only about 5% of the men said they were going home at night and absorbing the second shift. I really loved hmm. how honest the men were in our survey in um, you know, just the written comments, but also when I interviewed them, because many of the men had run large companies, and they were very forthcoming in saying that, you know, they had someone at home that was doing the second shift and managing the sick family members. Um, The men also, when asked, said it was more difficult for women to become professionally and financially successful. Hmm. 80% of the men said that. And the men also said that it was more difficult for a woman to be a leader because she was expected to act like a man. She had to balance out her competency skills with also being, um, you know, somewhat feminine. And it was just a tightrope to walk. And so the men were very forthcoming about the extra challenges for the women. That's interesting, too, um, because statistically a third then, based on the research, a third of the millionaires are women. And I'm assuming that number is just only increasing now. Yes. So that's true. But it's yep. but the the other two thirds of the men understand that the women that have are succeeding, they're doing it. It's a lot harder for them than it was even for the men. Right, and they you know they were men who had run big companies, and so they had hired women and supervised mm-hmm. women, and 
had, you know, women as peers. And so they saw them over many years and saw the challenges and the struggles. Man, interesting stuff. As we wrap it up, um, what, what would you say is, is the one thing that all of us need to remember if we want to kind of start directing our life toward, you know, financial success like that, that maybe the millionaire goal? Well, and may I also say just overall personal success? Yeah. Um, I think conscientiousness is the number one key, and also to make yourself as resilient as possible. You know, to figure out what makes you happy, what strengthens you, whether it's, you know, running marathons or prayer or dancing or being with your kids. Find out what nurtures your soul, build your resilience, and then it will be much easier on a day-to-day basis to become conscientious and follow through and dependable. Love it. Uh, Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, thank you so much for your insights and uh, your, your, your hope that you give us to, to go create a healthier life. Thank you, Matt. And the book is The Millionaire Mystique, and it's on Amazon. You bet. And go to JudeMillerBurke.com, another great place to look for it. Millionaire Mystique, how working women become wealthy and how you can too. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to play a little game. As you know, we like the games. It's going to be the acronym game. We're going to try to figure out some acronyms. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, if you're if you're a texter, if you are a, on Twitter, then you have to learn shorthand, right? All of the different little shorthand acronyms. I don't know what we call them. But uh, joining us right now, Sadie Nielsen is going to help us figure out, we're going to do a game, but the game is about shorthand. She's going to give me, I guess, a, an acronym and I've got to tell you what it means. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. Are you ready for this? I'm so excited. All right. I have not seen any of these, but I am incredibly literate uh, in the Twitter sphere. We'll see about that. Okay. Okay, here we go. Ready? Yes. Number one. I K R. You what? I K R. I kill randomly. Wow, that was that was so close. That was violent. It's I know, right? I know you kill randomly, right? Who says? Who (laughs) says I K R? I thought you were in the Twitter sphere. Yeah, I thought I always said I K R meant I kill randomly. Oh, that's why I thought people were weird. Wow, that's okay. Okay, These are hard. Okay, keep going. (laughs) Okay. Um, A-K-A. Uh, also known as. Yep. That that's correct. That's old Good school. Job. That is very old school. Yeah. Most people should know that. That predates the typewriter. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes. Okay. BRB. You BRB, should know this one. Be right back. Yep. Those are easy. Come on. Give me a hard one, IDK. Okay. All right. Here we go. I think this one you'll get pretty what? easily too. TMI. Too much information. Yeah. You got that. These are easy. Okay. I don't know. Really, I don't think you're going to get this next I'll one. I'll get it. I get everything. Okay. What? I K. I know. You do know everything. Wow. I K. I'm super well, I know impressed. what I mean. K <laughs> was no than the last one. Okay. Um, I didn't know this one. Okay. So good luck. A F K. Oh, A F K. America flirts. <laughs> Kardashians. Kardashian lady. No, no. It's uh, away from the keyboard. Away from keyboard. Get away. So why? Oh, she so, said. So if you're playing a game, you say, oh, I've got away AFK, no, away from K, keyboard. No, that's that's so, what Terry tells me. So he I'm says, not in the keyboard. Away from keyboard. Oh, get away from the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, get a life. I just say get a life. G-A-L. All right. Okay. 
Next one. Yes. R-O-T-F-L. Rolling on the floor laughing. Oh, <laughs> that's good. Also known as Ruffle. Yes. Ruffle, 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 ruffle. <laughs> that's my favorite one. That's good. Yeah. Okay, I'm impressed. Thank you. Um, JK. Just kidding. Yep. These are so easy. You, okay, wait. We Give me a hard one. Okay, BRB. Be right back. No, no, this is a new one. Oh, BRB? No, I'm just kidding. We already oh, did that it. one. <laughs> darn it. Darn it. And once, the only one left, Uh-oh. YOLO. Yo, okay. Oh, sorry. I should say it as an acronym. Acronym. Y-O-L-O. YOLO. I know this. <laughs> you should know this um, one. I say it all the time. It's not like FOMO. YOLO. You only love otters. So close. You do say that all the time. Yeah, you do. What does YOLO mean, Benjamin? You only live once. Usually they say like, hashtag YOLO. <laughs> only live once. Got to get out there. That's a dumb one. Oh, okay. I like you only love otters. <laughs> that's a better one. Man, thanks, Sadie. Yeah, you're welcome. See, that was, I, you know, I feel hip. I only missed like a third of them. And I'm not even, I'm not even in my youth anymore. I'm in my early middle age. Mm-hmm. Late middle age. Early middle age. <laughs> Sheesh. We'll take a break. We'll come back. One more hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about? But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them, I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you, you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They, they actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. 
Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even – you can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray and then I got to pray. Well, you could say no. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident. uh, And some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't, ever say yes to anything, and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone. We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's, it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over, and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could, I mean, I see it a lot with my clients where, They just keep trying and trying and trying to do – to have a conversation even though it's not working. Well, what are we supposed to do? Just not talk? Well, no, but go learn how to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years – Maybe you've got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... We Seems gotta, a little cruel to me. Yeah, to skin, you don't have to skin a cat, skin cat to lose weight. You don't. But find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay, there's... But then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just we've got to find a different way of doing things that, especially after years of something not working. 
Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept, and I have no idea why I did it, I kept every script basically for our radio show, every article I read, we we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had I had Kaylee throw them out. She broke her – she about, darn near broke her back trying to lift this – lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters. But then when you look at people like Gandhi, you know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. And growing. (laughs) And growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? One thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh. One bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. Knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your what's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm going to let it go and turn into a horrible, evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst um, – what would you say is your worst habit uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard. I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You ought to hire me. Anyway – Let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. Even if that habit is you care too much. That's the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, have you ever had a run-in with someone at the grocery store or at work, and after a confrontation, you ask yourself, wow, 
What made them so angry? Where why are they all why are they always so mean? Why are they such a jerk? Have you ever thought that? Well, a study at Yale University by Dave Rand and Adam uh, Bear answers the question why some people are jerks, yet others are nice even to strangers. And uh, we just happened to have Dr. Dave Rand on the phone with us today to talk about this study. Dave Rand is an associate professor of psychology, economics, and management at Yale University and is here to, to walk us through his research. Dr. Rand, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This is an interesting study. Um, we've because this is kind of a, a blend. It sounds like between um, a, a few different theories, kind of kind of marketing or, or economic theories, right? Is that is that because this is based in the numbers? This isn't just social science, right? Right. It's. Uh, I mean, it's it's game theory basically. Game theory. The yeah. Game theory is um, social interaction, which is what we like to study are very complicated, um, which is a lot of what makes them interesting, but also it makes it hard to study them. And so the idea of game theory is to take these complicated social interactions and distill them down to the sort of core components of, uh, you know, what, what's the important essence of the interaction, and then describe them with numbers. And then once you have it uh, sort of described that way, you can do sort of mathematical analyses, which is part of what we did, and you can also do laboratory experiments where you have people actually make decisions about how to split money up uh, between themselves and others in ways that capture these core ideas from these games. So, because in games theory, um, it really is, we're doing things naturally in our social life, in our relationships, just as I interact with somebody at a store. I'm going to do kind of what comes naturally to me. But what I guess you're finding out, though, is there there is kind of a games theory approach to why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So so it, game theory gives us a language to uh, to think about uh, these kinds of social interactions, like what happens at the grocery store, um, in a in a clear way. So, for example, the game that is the most famous game of game theory, and that's sort of central to all the stuff that I do, is called the Prisoner's Dilemma. Um, and that's for sort of historical reasons. I don't care so much about the actual story of the prisoners in the dilemma, but the idea of this game is that two people simultaneously make a choice. They can either be selfish and keep some money for themselves, or they can be generous and give it to the other person, in which case it'll get doubled. Hmm. And so this very simple game, just each person choosing... Are they going to cooperate with the other person and, and you know, give them the money, or are they going to be uh, selfish and keep it for themselves? That captures the core idea of so much of our social interactions, where there's the tension between what's best for you individually and what's best for everyone as a whole. Because if both people, uh, you know, say people, they have $10. So if they keep the $10, they get $10. If they cooperate, then they give it up and the other person gets $20. Hmm. What happens so what if they happens, both fight trying to keep it? Right. They so get the, less. The, 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 yeah, exactly. That's right. the sort of beauty of the prisoner's dilemma is that if both people are selfish, they each just keep their $10 and only get $10. Hmm. Whereas if both people are cooperative, they both give up their $10 to give the other person 20 and that means they both earn 20 hmm. 
So when yeah. both people cooperate, they do better when both than when both people are selfish. So how does this get into the fact that I'm walking down the street and some people are jerks and some people are nice? Right. Well, so the issue is that although um, both people are better off when they cooperate than if both are selfish, no matter what the other person does, you always do better by being selfish because, say, they give you their $20. Say they give, you know, they give you their money, so you get $20 from them. Uh, if you're also cooperative, then you only get that $20. But if you're selfish, you get the $20 from the other person plus the $10 that you decided to keep. And so it has this tension where you're collectively better off if both people cooperate, but no matter what the other person does, you always earn more by being selfish. Mm. And so the question is, what determines who are the people that are willing to cooperate and who are the people that act selfishly? And this maps on to all kinds of real-world situations where, you know, uh, if everyone behaves well, it makes everyone better off, but there's always a temptation to, uh, you know, to be selfish or free ride on the good behavior of others. Yeah. Um, and so the idea in our study was that, um, so in, in, a, in a situation where there are no future consequences, like interactions with strangers, then it's the case that being selfish, you know, is what pays off. Right. But uh, in the context of uh, ongoing relationships, sort of what we call repeated interactions, then it actually can be in your long-run self-interest to be cooperative. Because if I'm a jerk to you today, that means that you are more likely to be a jerk to me tomorrow, or vice versa. If I'm willing to cooperate with you today, you'll be more likely to cooperate with me tomorrow. So in, in our long-term relationships, it makes more sense, and in games theory, to cooperate, cooperate, cooperate. If it's a short-term, one-time event, we're more, I guess we're more likely or it's it, that doesn't mean we're more likely to do it that way, right? We could still cooperate even in short-term, one-off events. Right. So this is the difference between uh, game theory and the experiments, where game theory is sort of saying what you should do if you are trying to maximize your payoff, basically. And then we have the experiments to see what people actually do. Hmm. So what game theory says, you know, sort of quote-unquote makes sense, is to cooperate in repeated interactions, but to be selfish in, you know, short-term, one-off kind of interactions. So, and yeah, what... It's, when you have people play experiments, which yeah. is when you have people actually do these kinds of games in, in the labs, they come into the lab and we give them money and they choose whether to keep it or give it to the other person. What you see is that people are much more cooperative in repeated interactions than in one-off interactions. And I think if you think about real life, you'll see the same thing there, where it's like um, you, I mean, also often people are helpful to strangers, but like the, uh, the, the, the push to be helpful and cooperative with your friends and your coworkers is much stronger. Hmm. That's, and, and that's bearing out then. So um, I guess... It's it's kind of natural for us to try to be cooperative, but if it's going to be a long-term relationship, we are much more likely to, to focus that way. Right. And so a lot of the contribution of our uh, our sort of recent work on this is to, is to try to understand from a sort of game theory perspective why it is that we 
care about helping strangers. That is, it's clear that, like you said, people will often help strangers, and it really feels right. Like, it feels wrong to take advantage of people, even if there's not going to be any future consequences, right? Like, you're a good person, it just feels wrong. And so we want to understand, like, where does that come from? And the argument that I have been making, and I'll tell you about several different kinds of evidence that support it, but my argument is that because most of our interactions are long-term repeated interactions where it's a good idea, that is where it actually is in your self-interest to cooperate. Because it's typically in your self-interest to cooperate, we wind up internalizing cooperating as our sort of basic default way of being. Hmm. And so when we find ourselves in a one-shot anonymous situation or one of these sort of short-term uh, things, you know, some helping some stranger in the, in the grocery store, our first impulse is to feel like, oh, we should cooperate because cooperating is what usually works well. Yeah. But if you stop and think about it, you might realize, oh, actually, this is a situation that's different from normal. Here, there's not going to actually be any future benefit to helping this person. And eh, maybe I'll just go ahead and not do it. Oh, interesting. And we have a ton of experiments. I actually have a paper out today in psychological science, um, which is a meta-analysis of 51 experiments and more than 15,000 subjects from all over the world um, showing that uh, in these experiments where we give money and it's a sort of one-shot situation, you have money, you can either keep it or you can uh, give some up to cooperate with an anonymous stranger, people's first response is to cooperate. But if you make them think more carefully about it, um, they actually wind up getting more selfish. It's interesting because um, we're not thinking about it. We're doing it naturally. So sometimes – but I guess in the end, I'm always – I'm not interacting – okay, this is going to sound weird. I'm not always interacting with someone else, but sometimes I'm interacting with me, my own psyche, right? My own sense mm-hmm. of what's right or wrong. So – but doing games theory would make me actually think, should I be charitable here? It's a one-off event. No, I, it wouldn't advantage me. But also simultaneously, I could see, um, what about a situation where it's a salesman at your door? It's a one-off event. I'm never going to see this guy again. I should say no, but because I'm a nice guy, I might try yeah. to cooperate with him. It's a great example, right? Where like you should just say no. Just say no. It feels bad to, because it feels like, you're used to interacting with people where it would be rude to say, no, go away. Right. Like, you let the guy in. Um, and that's exactly the kind of situation that I'm thinking about here where you have this impulse to be nice, uh, even in situations where it, you know, sort of doesn't make sense. Right. It's, it's almost, um, yeah, it's to your, yeah, it's to your deficit. Right. Huh. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, I think that a lot of people... Uh, if you ask people, is your first impulse to be uh, cooperative and then thinking carefully about things makes you selfish, or is it that your first impulse is to be selfish and the way you get yourself to do the right thing is by thinking carefully about it, most people think it's the latter. Mm. think that we're sort of like selfish animals, basically, and then we use thinking and our sort of rationality to make ourselves do the right thing. Um, But our data very clearly uh, suggests that it's the opposite, which is, again, also what you would think about from this kind of uh, theoretical or uh, perspective that says, you know, that is, if you want to think about one of these questions, I think 
that is what is our um, what is our default? Is our default to be cooperative or is our default to be selfish? Uh, people have just some kind of mm. general impressions, but the way I try and approach this is to think about like what are defaults, what are our intuitions, like where do they come from, and what would it make sense for them to be? Yeah. Um, and the idea from a lot of cognitive psychology is that the things that we uh, adopt as our default responses, and this isn't sort of consciously thinking about it, but through some kind of intuitive processes, the thing that we develop as our sort of default intuitions, they're like rules of thumb for behaviors that typically work well. And when you think about it that way, then it makes a lot of sense that cooperating should be a rule of thumb uh, because that's what typically works well. And, and um, boy, this is interesting because it also, I guess, this could get into your morality, right? This could get into – this is into all of your decision-making. Yeah, for sure. And so this my sort of argument is that uh, this is where a lot of morality comes from, that the way you sort of develop the, the, the sort of basic underlying – features of your morality are these kinds of rules of thumb for what typically works well in, in social interaction. Like you think hmm. about the golden rule, yeah, right? The golden rule, if, if you're talking about a stranger, that seems very nice and altruistic. But if you're talking about your ongoing relationships, the golden rule is just good sense. Yeah. But, but a stranger um, – but see, I guess that's where – uh, this is because there, then there's this battle with my mind thinking, well, I, I need to be nice. I mean, I guess you can be nice and turn away a salesman. So it's not an either or. But uh, that this might be then why we get taken advantage of. This is this is the rationale why we some people constantly get taken advantage of. It's true. That the, right. So 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 because they don't distinguish. Right. Exactly. It's a really good point. That this, so the, the idea with the rule of thumb is that having a rule of thumb to cooperate can be a really good, useful thing Mm -hmm. because uh, it usually gets you to the right answer and it sort of saves time and cognitive effort. You don't have to clearly stop and think and calculate through every time what makes sense. You just kind of go with your rule of thumb. But if you're too willing to go with the rule of thumb, then you can get exploited. And so one of the things that we get out of the game theory model is uh, you can sort of do this calculation that says, yes, there is an optimal strategy which has a, a rule of thumb to cooperate, and then it uses that rule of thumb in situations where the potential costs are low. But if you're in a situation where there's a, a big potential cost of cooperating when you shouldn't, then you're sort of more likely to stop and think about it and be like, hey, maybe I should be careful here. Yeah. Which yeah, which would lead you. I mean, so it's it's just differentiating long term versus short term, and and I guess your goals, right? I mean, my I don't want to give everything away long term for a short term gain. Hmm. Fascinating. Right. You know, Dave. Let's right. let's take a break. Sorry to interrupt you. Let's take a break, oh, and, and and we'll come back. And I and I want you to continue to teach us about um, kind of the research behind it. Also, what sets us up? Are some of us are some of us set up to just automatically not go cooperative, just to be the jerk, always compete? And is, does any of that have to do with how we were raised? Stick with us, folks. We're going to continue the discussion with uh, Professor uh, Dave Rand from Yale University, giving us the latest and greatest on some of his research about uh, why some are jerks and why some are nice. Stick with us. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, your coach here, your guide on the side, and what we're trying to do today, we're working with Dr. Dave Rand, uh, who is a professor, associate professor of psychology, economics, and management at Yale University. He's also a member of the Yale Institute for Network Science and the Institution for Social and Policy Studies. And he's been walking us through one of his latest studies about why some people are jerks, yet others are nice, even to strangers. And apparently it comes down to, you know, our, the, our kind of our operating paradigm, the way we think. Do we, do, are we a cooperative person that thinks by cooperating it's, it's going to be more advantageous to us? Do we think that we need to compete in every situation? Uh, Dr. Rand, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. This is um, to me. This is so fascinating because we don't we don't think about it, you know, long term, short term, cognitively. It doesn't seem like we just kind of we just kind of wing it with people. Is that is that kind of how we end up playing the game in game theory? I mean, in your theories, I mean, in your process, you're you actually are having them play a game, but in real life, we're just winging it. Right, and and I think that uh, a w- much of the time people are just winging it. Sometimes I think people do stop and think about it, and and what our work suggests is that for most people, when you just wing it, you go with the thing that typically works well, mm. and for most people, uh, that's cooperating. Yeah. You might then stop and think about it and realize, oh, actually, here's a situation where, you know, like with your salesman example, like you might feel when a salesman comes and knocks on your door, you feel an impulse to like let the person in and then have a whole conversation with them or when a telemarketer calls you on the phone. But then you might sort of stop and think and override that and be like, no, I don't want to waste my time. Honestly, I don't want to waste their time either if I know I'm not going to buy it and just say, sorry, thanks. Yeah. Um, and, but but the, the key or a key part of this idea that what your sort of default way of being is is determined by what typically works well for you is that it's going to vary across people. I think for a lot of people, uh, I would argue for most people, at least living in the U.S., it is typically in your long run interest to be cooperative. And so it makes sure that so it makes sense that when you wing it, you wind up cooperating. But if you uh, say live in a, uh, an area where there's not good rule of law, think there's a lot of crime, things aren't safe, you feel like you can't trust strangers, mm. then it might not be the case that it's a good idea in general to be cooperating. Or if you work in a company that really re- uh, rewards uh, backstabbing and sort of ladder climbing and doesn't create, sort of foster a culture of cooperativeness, then you might wind up uh, sort of switching your default to be selfishness interesting rewarded and selfishness could just be self-preservation right 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 exactly because maybe that's what we're seeing with with some of the things going on just culturally in the united states with certain populations that don't feel safe to be pulled over that don't feel safe to you know be questioned by police i mean it might just create a tension of not not wanting to cooperate just to self-protect Right. I mean, I think that in a situation where most of your interactions with a particular type of person are interactions uh, where uh, basically you feel wronged, 
then it makes a lot of sense that you're going to develop a baseline way of being of saying, I don't trust that type of person. Right. I don't want to interact with them. And then it may be that you can use sort of uh, what we call it's deliberation, sort of careful thinking to, in certain situations, be like, no, actually, here, let me override that. This is a particular, you know, even though in general I don't trust a certain kind of person, this particular person I do or this particular situation I do hmm. or something like that. But it makes sense that your sort of default responses are going to reflect your prior, your past experience. Yeah. How, how, and where, I mean, that's interesting how you brought it up culturally. Yeah. If you've been lived in a country where you're constantly fighting for every thing that you need, and you can't trust anybody, then, man, it would be hard to move into a cooperative system. Right. Does, right. So I guess that, too, depends to how we're raised, right? Are some people raised more um, – just more to be less cooperative? Um, yeah. So I, it, I don't have uh, – I don't have that much uh, – real sort of empirical evidence of this, but I certainly, what my theory would argue is that the way that you're raised is quite important for this. And we're currently running experiments with kids um, in a bunch of different countries to look at how uh, the sort of cooperativeness changes over the course of being raised as a function of, you know, the, the sort of culture that you're growing up in. Hmm. Um, but I, I definitely think that the, in the same way that, uh, for example, a company that rewards selfishness uh, will sort of lead to people developing that as their default, if your parents are always teaching you, don't be a sucker, like, don't help other people, you've got to look out for yourself, it makes Man. a lot of sense that that's the thing that you're going to wind up internalizing. Yeah. As your, as your default. It's also interesting that because this is a dynamic that's going on real time. So I'm talking to somebody and I might be starting in a cooperative mentality, but as soon as I sense selfishness, I might then switch to selfish and then this thing can deteriorate quickly. Right, totally. And that's actually something that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense from the perspective of this uh, you know, sort of automatic response is the good rule of thumb because it's not the cooperating period is that say in, in the context of long-term interactions, long, long-term relationships, it's not that just always cooperating is the, is the right strategy because you also don't want to get exploited. The sort of best strategy is to start by cooperating and then cooperate if the other person is being cooperative, but if the other person is sufficiently selfish then you should also switch to not helping them hmm. um, to protect yourself. And so there's also a lot of evidence that in the same way that cooperating in these sort of one-off interactions is intuitive, it's also intuitive if someone does a bad thing to you, like if someone exploits you, it's intuitive to retaliate. Yeah. It seems like that that's where there could be really egregious uh, um situations where I where I'm not adapting to what's going on I stay cooperative when they continually keep aggressively selfishly dominating then I then I then I'm setting myself up to become a victim right hmm. right you got to protect yourself yeah now it's interesting and um, and then but for example I just this is crazy timing but I just watched Gandhi 
the movie. I don't know if you've seen it uh-huh. from many, many moons ago. But one of the things that was so telling to me is his peaceful resistance uh, going head to head with a with a selfish person. He said, "They said, so what happens if we peacefully resist and they hurt us?" Then he said, "Well, peacefully resist still and." You'll take a few lumps, but after you take a few lumps, you might you would probably convert the average person into realizing they ought to cooperate. But it, it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Because it's like, how many punches do I need to take before this guy's going to start cooperating? And they may right. not. I, yeah, and we've we've talked a lot about nonviolence in my lab, and I think it's a really interesting uh, thing because. As you phrase it there, which is exactly right, it's it's a strategy. Yeah, it's not it's not something so much where it's like do this on basic moral principles, but rather it's like this is an effective way of in the long run changing other people's behavior. And I think that part of it maybe is that it's so surprising. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it sort of really challenges your basic ways of thinking. Look, I just keep hitting this person, and they're not doing anything. Like, what's going on? And it sort of shakes people up more than it would be if you did the expected thing of mm. retaliating. Right, and I guess that that one of the things he would hope that that would do would shift, you know, shift the 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 cultures and the societies that see that as unjust. But yeah. if you if you're in a culture that doesn't see that is unjust. Just keep taking it from them. Just keep taking it. Then this never would have shifted. But there were cultures, and I guess that's what Gandhi knew: is there are cultures of goodness that are just that that are going to operate out of cooperation more than self-interest. Hmm. Yep. And I think a lot of a lot of our work is aimed at understanding how can you organize things in a way to promote the cultures of cooperation. I love um, it. The context that I most often think of it is in terms of um, companies and sort of organizations, because there it's easier for, you know, a relatively small number of people to change the way things are set up and, you know, build a culture within an organization. But the same principles apply at the country level. Um, You know, it's just harder to make changes there. No, it totally is. Well, uh, Dr. David Rand, we appreciate you and can't uh, recommend more. Everybody go check out the website, davidrand-cooperation.com. davidrand-cooperation.com. Fascinating site there. Also, just great visuals to help you understand what we've been talking about. And we appreciate you, Dr. Rand. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. Incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh, resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's 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 essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of of our society, all marriages are not created equal. 
right? So if if a 19 to 24 year old person gets pregnant, historically we'd say you got to marry you got to marry the man, marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here. And then all of a sudden, we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, – with economic struggles. So it's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one on one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What what is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's these are all important parts of the decision, and. There are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense. And I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city, difficult, financially strained situations – it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer Sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. 
So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the, the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. But it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, Let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship. Just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um... Another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles um, – Women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, 
uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us for a whole new hour of the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> 